Well, I am frequently asked uh, by people if and when I plan on speaking about current events. And the question usually goes, well, what are we going to do about this? Fill in the blank. And that might be a number of topics. That might be masks or vaccines or elections or critical race theory or legislation or Russia, Ukraine, World Economic Forum, climate crisis, all the different things that we see in our news feed. Pastor, when are you going to speak to any of these things? Not that there aren't biblical responses to the issues that we face, because there are, but our current culture seems caught in this feedback loop of listening to voices that continuously mislead them. If you remember from Scripture, Jesus was often asked to comment on current events. One such instance that came to mind when I was thinking this week was there was a tragic collapse of a tower in Siloam. And this tower fell and killed 18 people. And people uh, came to Jesus and they pressed him for the response. Whether or not he's going to make some kind of a public declaration of solidarity or virtue signaling or whether he's going to start a hashtag campaign, hashtag stand with Siloam, whether anything like that. Because that's what we do today when we want to show solidarity is things like that. Instead, what did Jesus say? He seized on the tragic event to warn people, and he said this, unless you repent, meaning of your sins, you will all likewise perish. That's hard to hear. Now, Jesus is not saying this to be harsh or unloving. Not at all. There's nobody more compassionate toward those who are hurting than Jesus Christ. But he was saying this to remind the people that were coming to him that there's more going on in the world and in eternity than what is taking place in the news today. There is an eternal plan and a divine timetable. And Jesus maintains a right view of the heavenly and the eternal over the earthly and the temporal. And yet, as we all watch Western society degrade before our very eyes, We tend to find ourselves clinging to earthly saviors. And I see it all the time. In our political parties, they promise us the moon and the stars, but all they can deliver is empty space. Programs and people and parties, they're powerless to save us. And if you think that they can, check again, they cannot. All they do is benefit themselves and run us ragged. Now, I want to be very clear. If God gives you a vote, cast it. If he gives you a voice, use it. If he gives you opportunity, take it. But brothers and sisters, do not give Caesar your heart. Do not. It's a wasted errand. Don't give up the powers, uh, don't give the powers of this world your unfettered allegiance. Because politics and culture are terrible gods. And when they fail to deliver, as they always will, don't let your heart grow weary, because that is a temptation. We see everything going on, and it's, it, is it not getting worse by the day? It seems. And our hearts grow weary. And I want you to note this, and make no mistake, that there are sinister forces at work right now in the world. But nothing, I mean nothing, happens apart from the purpose and plan of Almighty God. Nothing takes the Lord by surprise. And I believe that God is presently delivering this world over to its sinful appetites for a reason. For the unbeliever, unto judgment. But for the believer, for us, unto sanctification. 
Judgment begins at the household of God. He's going to chasten and purify us first. And as the world continues to degrade, our love and connection to it must be severed. Does not 1 John 2.15 say, Do not love the world or the things of the world? Then he adds a little bit later, The world is passing away and also its desires, but the one who does the will of God will abide forever. There's a promise for you and for me. Those who love the Lord and abide by His will, we will outlive this world that is passing away. See, the Lord is exposing the absolute bankruptcy of this current system and setting the stage for the return of Christ. When is this going to happen? We don't know. No one knows the hour of the Lord's return. But the Bible prophesies that Christ does not return to a world that is decent and run in order. Things aren't going well when Christ returns. Instead, He comes to a world that has collapsed under the reign of Antichrist, and the Lord returns both as Redeemer and Judge of all things. And part of the reason that so many are struggling right now with spiritual depression is because we have fixated our eyes on the hopelessness of this world. But Colossians 3, 1 and 2 tells us, if then you have been raised with Christ, and that's who we are as believers, those who are raised with Christ, he says, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. And then he says, set your mind on the things above and not on the things of the earth. And so the greatest thing that I could ever do for you as a shepherd, as a pastor, is not to respond to every every headline that comes across your feed. Because most of that is either skewed or likely false. But rather, the greatest thing I could ever do to you or for you is preach the everlasting gospel of an eternal Christ and help you to lift your gaze upward and see Christ exalted over all creation. And so, brothers and sisters, that is what I'm committed to do from this pulpit. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. We are continuing in this discourse here. But Matthew's Gospel, and we're moving through this narrative, and we see Jesus in, has this encounter with the Pharisees over the issue of the Sabbath. The issue of the Sabbath. We saw that just a few weeks ago. Now, there's several things going on here in this passage. Jesus has denounced, has denounced the unbelieving and unrepentant cities of Galilee. He's already pronouncing judgment on them. He's saying, it's going to be better for for Sodom and Gomorrah in the end than for you who are turning away from the Messiah. So Jesus is already pronouncing judgment on some of these cities. But the rest of them, he's following those condemnations up with offering really rest to those who do trust in him. Those who are coming to him, he doesn't pronounce condemnation, he actually pronounces peace and rest to them. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you, learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And then he demonstrates his lordship over the Sabbath, rest, by defending the disciples and their right to to go and pick grain on the Sabbath. They were being accused of working and violating the Sabbath, and Jesus says that's wrong. And proves from the Scriptures why they misunderstood the whole purpose of the Sabbath. And he himself declares himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. You have this Sabbath observance for rest. And you think that you're the ones who facilitate the keeping of that? I'm the one who invented it. The Sabbath rest is for me, Jesus says. 
And then he follows up that illustration by, by showing this miracle. He, he heals this man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees don't know what to do with him. But all along, as he's preaching and teaching and healing in his ministry, he's establishing himself publicly as the long-awaited Messiah. And the crowds, they get so excited, and they want to hail him as Messiah. But the Pharisees, they're looking on, the religious leaders of Israel, and they're seeing that Jesus is an imminent threat to their power. And so in verse 14 of chapter 12, they vow to destroy him. They're already plotting in their hearts to figure out a way to get him on some kind of a technicality and get rid of him and crucify him and put him away. And so starting in verse 15, Jesus is picking up on that, that, that last declaration in their hearts, their conspiracy to destroy him. Verse 15, we pick it up here, his response. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him and he healed them all. And he warned them not to tell who he was this was to fulfill what was spoken through, the, through Isaiah the prophet. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Now whether Jesus knows about this plot to destroy him, whether he knows that through his own omniscience, his all-knowing uh, attribute of, uh, of deity, or whether he knows it because someone in his camp has told him so because they heard, we're not really sure how he finds out or how he, how he knows that they're going to try to destroy him. But as he often did, Jesus would, 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 he would pull himself away and withdraw from the action. He did this frequently, actually. And the question is, well, why, did always, why was he always kind of sneaking away and, and withdrawing from the action? Is it because he doesn't want to stand his ground? Is that why? Absolutely not. Rather, we see over and over again that Jesus is keenly aware of God's own timetable. He, he knows the hour. He knows on what chronology he's working on. And where crowds tend to fever pitch and sort of get into this viral activity and they, they push and there's sort of a, a mass thinking or a mass response, it's easy to get swept up in movements and excitement and all of that. And Jesus doesn't want to do that. He's following a course of action that the Father has set out for him. And he knows that his time is going to come when he is going to go to the cross and die on the cross to pay the penalty of sins. That's why Jesus came to the earth to go and give his life as a ransom for you and for me, to pay for our sin debt. That's why he's here. But he's not going to fast track that. He's going to do this purposefully. And so instead of permitting the Pharisees to arrest him then, or any time around then, he actually withdraws from the crowds and he hides himself away for the time being. But Matthew notes that many still followed him. There were always people, they, they, they couldn't get enough of Jesus. And they, every time he would do a miracle or have a teaching, they, they'd find their way through the crowds and, and then they would follow him. He'd go across the sea and they'd follow him on boats and they'd meet him on the other side. And they're always looking for Jesus and trying to find Jesus and be with him. And so they're drawn to him naturally. Of course you want to be drawn to someone who's doing things that are amazing. And the crowds are following him. And in those crowds are many who are sick, many who are hurting, who are downcast, who are diseased, 
who are lame. And he's not turning a blind eye to these people. He's not, he's not thumbing his nose at their suffering the way the Pharisees did. We saw that last time. The Pharisees wouldn't even... They, they were so focused on nailing Jesus to the wall over violating the Sabbath, they didn't care about the man who'd been suffering with a withered hand. But Jesus, what does Matthew say about Jesus? Many followed him, and what? He healed them all. Can you imagine the loving kindness of Jesus to see all these crowds, even though he's trying to get away, he sees all these crowds coming to him and they're hurting and they're sick, and he heals them all, indiscriminately. The Bible says nothing about their faith, nothing about their profession, purely the loving kindness of Christ. This is the the kind of effect it had on people. It rocked their world. They didn't know what to do about it. In fact, John 6.15 records an incident where after Jesus feeds the 5,000, we actually know it's more than 5,000, that's 5,000 guys, He, he feeds tens of thousands of people, and the Bible says they were intending to seize him by force and make him their king. We want this man to be our king. And why would they do that? Well, I want you to imagine for a second that you're living under an oppressive foreign government that's taxing you to death. And if that's not bad enough, your local leaders, the ones who are your people, your local leaders, are responding by placing these heavy burdens and restrictions on you to the point where you can't even breathe. So the Romans are getting you from afar, and your own Jewish leaders are getting you from within. And now one day, a man shows up, he exposes all the corruption, he feeds all the people, heals all the people by divine miracle, and you're thinking to yourself, if I could just make him our king, he could overthrow the Romans, drain the Pharisaical swamp, if you will, and set up Israel as the dominant nation of the world. Wouldn't that be great? That's what they thought of Jesus. This this is our earthly savior. This is the solution to all of our problems. We can just get him. If he doesn't want to become king, we're going to force him to become king. And get him to rule over us, and then everything will be better. But Jesus isn't about to do that. At least, not yet. And so in verse 16, it says, He warned them. He warned them not to tell who he was. Don't tell anybody who I am. That's an odd thing, isn't it? It seems weird to us. Jesus, why wouldn't you want to reveal yourself for who you are? Not yet. Not yet. Because the crowds, they want to go fever pitch. They want to bring him into the, into the city and they want to prop him up and they want everything to be fixed right then and there. But he doesn't want to cause a stir. He doesn't want to incite a grassroots movement to solve their political or their earthly desires. That's not why he's here. In fact, Jesus wants to avoid all provocation until his hour had come. Why? Why did he have to wait? Because Jesus knew that he was here to fulfill a bigger role than purely a problem-solving politician. That's not who Jesus is. More than this, he explains that his role goes far back into history. This is historic. This isn't just what's going on in the world today. This is the whole world for all time. And Jesus knows that he is drawing back to history, and he's not primarily coming to meet earthly needs. Does he meet some earthly needs? Yes, he does. But that's not the main reason for the mission. He had come to fulfill prophecy and to meet a greater spiritual and eternal need. 
In fact, Matthew records that Jesus, his ministry is quiet and humble. It's a servant ministry. How many times in the Gospels does Jesus heal someone and say, now, don't tell anybody. Go right to the temple and verify the miracle, but don't tell anybody. And what do they always do? They go dancing through the streets and telling everybody, right? Even they don't listen. Nobody listens to Jesus. But that's always what we see happening. It's quiet. His ministry is, he's undercover. He's quiet. He's meek. He's humble. He's lowly. But even the nature of his ministry, as we're going to see, is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He says in verse 17, Matthew's recording, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Now there were, we know, in fact, more than 300 Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. And this one stood out. And we're going to see why. Look at verses 18 through 21. Now Matthew's quoting here. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Now, if you were with us just a couple of years ago, this passage might seem familiar, because we did a series before the Gospel of Matthew of Christ in the Old Testament, I wanted to spend some time going through a lot of the key passages that show up here. So if you've been with us for a few years, you've already been to this. But I want to go back even just for a few minutes. Go back to Isaiah 42 in your Bible. Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 is the first of four servant songs. Servant songs articulated in the prophecy. All of these servant songs describe the character and the calling of a mysterious and unnamed servant. But the New Testament clearly identifies that servant as Jesus Christ. Isaiah 49, just to kind of keep this in your mind as you're turning to 42, but Isaiah 49 describes the commissioning of the servant, whereby we see him restoring the people of Israel and redeeming them. Isaiah 50 articulates the obedience of the servant who submits himself to the will of God and in order to suffer humiliation and scorn. And then the the pinnacle is really reached in Isaiah 53, which brings about the culmination of all the servant songs and the suffering of the servant himself, who gives up his own life. And the servant is pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities and chastised for our well-being. And Isaiah declares it is by his scourging, by his stripes, that we are healed. And so Isaiah 53 really describes the agony of the cross which accomplished salvation. But Isaiah 42, Isaiah 42 really begins this whole series and articulates the calling of God's servants. So look at Isaiah 42, these four verses. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. 
Now, if you're paying attention, you'll notice that the passage sounds a little bit different than what's recorded in Matthew, doesn't it? The words are, are slightly different. And scholars have talked about this and debated, and it's very likely that Matthew, as a, an early first century Jewish scribe, is recording the passage from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And he's not using what's known as the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew source that we actually uh, draw our Old Testament from today. So there's going to be a little bit of difference in translation. But others have actually thought that Matthew himself is almost functioning as, as commentator. He's synthesizing what the, the, the essence of, uh, of Isaiah 42 really is and then bringing some of that meaning into his recording. But regardless of what he's doing, uh, th- this is the source. This is exactly what he's quoting from. It is from Isaiah 42. But I want to look briefly at this. Isaiah 42, 1 begins by recording the father's uh, commendation of the servant. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. Through the pen of Isaiah, God is calling the mysterious servant my servant. God is claiming this ownership and, and connection to this specific servant. There's lots of servants in the Bible, but this is my servant. He's the one I've chosen. And it becomes clear that the Lord is going to, through a mighty work, He's going to uphold Him. He's going to strengthen Him. He's going to work through Him because He's pleased with Him. That becomes very important. He even promises to put His Spirit upon Him. And so this is a choice servant who's different from all the others. He's unique. And then we read about His mission. It's articulated in several places in these verses, but look again at verse 1. Here's part of the mission. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And to verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Verse 4, he will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. And so this notion here that's repeated is the idea of bringing forth justice and establishing God's law. It has to do with making all things right in the world. So this servant is going to come and he's going to vindicate all righteousness. And he's going to establish justice on the earth so far as even the coastlands where the Gentiles live. So not where the Jews are all living, but all the pagan nations and the Gentiles, even as far as they are concerned, he'll bring justice for them as well. And so in Isaiah's day and In Jesus' day and even in our day, we see that unrighteousness and injustice, all because of sin, it seems to dominate the whole world, doesn't it? I often think to myself, because I'm a romantic and I romanticize periods of history in the course of time, I'm, I'm thinking, well, if things get really bad, where do we go? There's no more Plymouths to go to, so where would we go, right? When things got so bad in England, they were arresting and persecuting and even putting to death pastors and church members, you flee, you go somewhere else. But where else is there to go? And I've, I've done the whole roster of all the different countries we could go. I could go to that, that, that island. That's a nice island. I like that this time of year. But there's nowhere to flee, is there? Well, why? Because the whole world is swallowed up in unrighteousness and injustice. There's not a single nation or people group in the world that is pure and unstained from this wickedness. But Isaiah prophesies the coming of God's servant who is going to establish true justice and righteousness according to God's law. 
But then we're left to wonder, what kind of a leader is going to be coming to do that? Will he be a fierce military leader? He's got to be, right? All the great leaders of world history who've conquered nations, even though they might have been great men, they were fierce men. He's going to be some kind of a, a savage tyrant, right? But Isaiah illustrates the servant's character, and it's different than what you might think. Look at verses 2 and 3. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. So he's not going to be loud and braggadocious and nothing like that. Look at verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Well, how is that going to work? Verse 2 talks about his humility. He's not going to cry out. The, the word that's used for cry out here is to shout or to scream or even to shriek. In the Greek, if you were to bring the, the Greek into it, the Greek is really almost like a raven's call, like a squawk. So he's not going to stand in the street corner and raise his voice. He's not going to draw attention to himself. Now, Jesus was a preacher, for sure, but the idea is he's not going to be manic and he's not going to be standing on the, on the top of the pillar of the temple and crying out to all the world to listen to him. That's not how his ministry went. He's not going to make his voice heard in the street. The servant is not looking to make much of himself or draw attention to himself. This is really important as we're going to see. Then he talks about the gentleness and the, the meekness of the servant. What kind of world leader is meek and lowly and humble? That does not seem right, does it? Can you imagine a soft-spoken prime minister or soft-spoken president or a soft-spoken military general who's meek and lowly and humble and tender toward people? We can't fathom that, can we? But what does this gentleness look like? Look at this. A bruised reed he will not break. A reed is a very flimsy, hollow blade of grass, if you will. And we see this imagery of this servant walking through and seeing this this reed that is bending in the wind and, and a little bit damaged. And when he sees this damaged reed flimsy, he doesn't walk by and snap it. He won't even damage a bruised reed. And what about this dimly burning wick? A candle that's been burned down to the very, very bottom where it's just barely a, a tiny flame about to smolder and go out. It says that this, this burning wick, this smoking flax, he won't even extinguish. He won't even co- go near and breathe on it to extinguish the flame. So now we're talking about just a, a flick of a wrist or a breath. He's so tender, he won't even damage that. In other words, this servant will not hurt or crush those who are barely holding on. To borrow a phrase from Matthew, this servant is gentle and humble in heart. Now we know this beautiful prophecy is fulfilled in the arrival of this servant. Go back to Matthew 12. Back to Matthew 12. Again, we know that Jesus is quoting here from Isaiah 42 to speak of himself. Matthew is the one who's recording it. And yet Matthew records again a slightly different rendering of the passage. I want to see this again. I want to nail this down in our minds here. Because again, this prophecy speaking of Jesus. Out of all the prophecies in the Old Testament speaking about Jesus Christ, look at this. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved. Look at 
my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, I'll put my spirit upon him. He shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel. He will not cry out, shriek, scream. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off. A smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. In his name the Gentiles will hope. This is sounding pretty familiar, isn't it? And you get the sense of these verses. Again, different articulation. But there's an even stronger emphasis by Matthew here. My, behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. He's talking about, Isaiah is reciting the father's love for his son, the suffering servant. Listen to the annunciation. My servant, my chosen, my beloved. There are many times in the Gospels we see the father's public declaration of the love for the Son, Matthew 3.17, at the baptism of Jesus. You remember the scene? He's standing in the water. John the Baptist is next to him, totally bewildered. The Father speaks from heaven as the Spirit descends on him like a dove. And the Father breaks forth and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And all the earth trembles, doesn't it? Even the transfiguration in Matthew 17. Peter, James, and John, they're up on this mountain and Christ is transfigured before them and we, the, the, His humanity is peeled back for just a minute to see the display of His glory. And Peter, James, and John, they don't know what to do. They bow down. They don't, they're doing all kinds of practices of worship. They don't know what they're doing. And they hear a voice thundering from the, crowd, from the clouds This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Not Moses, not Elijah. Him. He's my chosen servant. He's the one who has my word and my law. He's the one who's going to bring justice. Same sentiment here. Same thing. What about the blessing of the Holy Spirit? Now we know theologically that Jesus Christ is God and cannot be indwelled by the Spirit because they're two distinct persons of the Godhead. But at His baptism, again, that the Spirit descends on Him as an outward sign to the crowds that, that God is uniquely striving with Him. In many places in the Gospels, we see the Spirit coming and ministering to Him and giving Him strength and upholding Him and helping Him in His earthly ministry. And really, it's the Father's unique identification of the Son to all the people. This is the one I'm uniquely choosing to represent me. Hebrews says He's the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of His nature, and the Spirit bears witness. That's Him. Unlike anybody else. Again, Jesus Christ is God's chosen servant to accomplish His will, but to the Pharisees, this is a repulsive notion. Because they believed that they were God's chosen servants. Were the ones. They would read Isaiah and say, well, that's Israel. And we represent Israel, so that's us. How did Jesus' ministry, though, fulfill this prophecy? Remember that Isaiah foretold of a humble and a quiet and a lowly servant. And if Christ was going to fulfill this prophecy... He couldn't have people making much of him. He couldn't have anybody drawing undue attention to him. That's why he tells people all the time to stop talking about him, at least for now. He does this in part, not just to quell some kind of a viral response, 
But he does this in part to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. Don't talk about me. I'm not going out in the streets and yelling and screaming. I'll preach. I'll teach. You'll listen. But I'm not going right to the temple and bursting in, at least not now. Now, we know two times he did burst in, but it wasn't for the sake of proclamation. It was for judgment. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. But no, Jesus' ministry, it's quieter than that. It's undercover. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, he told people, come to me and I'll give you rest. And the reason that they could is because he was gentle and humble. How gentle How humble. I want to read these verses again because I want these to be fixated in your mind, beloved. A battered reed he will not break off. A smoldering wick he will not put out. You need to know that Jesus is tender toward His beloved. He does not come to us in a way that is savage and merciless. No, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you've been born again, if you trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, if you've turned from your sins and put your hope and your faith alone in Him, if He's your God and you're His people, if He's your Savior, the one your soul loves, then He doesn't come at you hard and difficult and exacting. He's gentle toward you. This is contrasted with the Pharisees' harsh and oppressive actions toward the people. They were harsh. They were nasty. They burdened the people. But Jesus came to give them rest and to lift their burdens. Contrasting with the overbearing and the unjust Romans, Jesus came to bring forth justice. And Isaiah notes that the servant will bring forth justice to the nations. Matthew actually clarifies And elaborates because the word for nations, he actually presupposes that this is actually talking about the Gentiles. This isn't just Jews only, because that was their belief that the Messiah is going to come, he's going to save Israel. Israel only. And the Gentiles will be judged. But Jesus doesn't say that. He comes, yes, for Israel. But he also comes for the Gentiles. He even comes for the Romans who are oppressing them. You read the book of Acts and you see story after story after story of Gentiles, of Roman centurions, Roman generals, coming to faith in Jesus Christ. We read about even the end of Philippians. Paul, sneaky Paul, finds his way into Caesar's household. He's got operatives in there. And he's ministering the Gospel. Now the Gospel goes all over the world to every single people group, every tongue, tribe, and nation. That's why Jesus came. To bring the good news of Christ to all people. In fact, in the end of days, Christ will accomplish the final act of leading justice to victory. My friends, this is more, more than simply winning a culture war. That's not what he's doing. The Son of God is coming to earth first to save sinners spiritually, and then one day, mark this, he will return and destroy evil and lead justice to full victory. When our eyes are low and down, we get hopeless. When our our gaze is focused on the world and the media and corruption and problems here, are we to be ignorant of these things? No. But when our heart is fixed here, we forget this. 
The Christ is coming to lead justice to victory. And he will come. And every single day that gets worse and worse and worse hastens the day of his return. We forget that Christ is coming again. Woe to us if we forget that our hope does not lie here. Our hope lies with the one who's coming on the back of a horse with a sharp sword protruding from his mouth. Read Revelation 19. That's our future. To see him coming and bringing justice to victory. This is far greater than any temporal battle here. This is the dominance of the Lord Jesus Christ over every form of evil to its final destruction and to the establishment of true righteousness forever. Jesus did not come for Jewish nationalism. He came to cause both Jews and Gentiles to hope in his name. And Philippians 2.10 declares that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But my friends, the crowds, they couldn't see it yet. They couldn't see it yet. They simply wanted a a miracle-working, bread-creating, sickness-healing, Rome-defeating Savior who would make their lives a little better. But Jesus came to redeem and to save. He came to sift and to thresh. He came to judge and condemn. He came to bless and to comfort. And He came to glorify the Father throughout all creation. See, that's where we find ourselves in a bind if we think that we're going to use Jesus somehow to make our lives better. Now, yes, does Jesus change people? He does. He heals people spiritually. He heals their mind. He can even heal their body. Jesus can reconcile relationships. He can reconcile people groups. He can do all kinds of things here. And so, yes, we we glory in the ministry of Christ on earth right now. And I'm thrilled to see that the kingdom of God is still advancing. And as a New England-born, purebred right right here in town, to see God growing the church in New Hampshire right now, that is such a sweet balm to my soul. I, I spent the day yesterday with saints over at a church in Concord and just was so pleased to see the kingdom of Christ expanding in the hearts of all these people. They were praising God, learning the Bible, singing praises to Him. And so, yes, we glory in the church arising and advancing. But brothers and sisters, don't let your heart grow weary when you see what's going on in the world because it's not even ultimately about this present world. And I would even encourage you to consider this, that when you put your trust in earthly saviors, we're trusting in leaders who are self-serving, self-appointed, They're objects of wrath because of sin. They're unjust, unloving, quarrelsome, antagonistic, exploitative, destined to fail. Now that's a broad generalization. There are some leaders in our world who honor Christ and make wise judgments. But I'll tell you, it seems that they are few and far between, don't they? But the tyrants of this world are destined to fail. But Christ, Christ is the servant of God. He's the chosen one of the Lord God. He's beloved of God. He's well-pleasing to God. He is spirit-anointed. 
He's good and he's just. He's not quarrelsome. He's not proud. He's meek, lowly, and gentle. And yet he will be victorious. And in Christ, all the nations will put their hope. And so the best thing we could do to weather our current cultural storm is to preach the gospel. We're not, we're, we don't win cultural wars, but we do fight with truth. And any possible platform that you have to be truthful and honest and virtuous and godly, do it. We win with truth. But above all, we win with the gospel. And we call all people everywhere to confess their sins to God, to repent of their idolatry and for the love of the world. And we tell people, and I tell you, to study Christ, to know Him, to know Christ Jesus, to pray to Him. Pour out your heart, your sufferings, your pain. Pour out everything to Him. Entrust your heart to Christ. And He will carry your burdens. Glorify Him and praise Him as He rightly deserves. And when your heart is tempted to fear, trust Him. Trust Him. Have you not seen Him do things you never expected He would do? And He's about to do more. Because our prophesied Messiah will lead justice to victory. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And God, I... I stand here as your servant before your people, the ones whom you love. And Father, if there are times, and maybe even now, when our hearts are tempted to pursue allegiance or to venerate or to put our trust in earthly leaders or movements or powers or parties or whatever it is, I pray that you would sever our allegiance to this world. Lord, help us to do right when we can. Help us to be wise in how we use our vote and our resources and our voice and everything you've given us, Lord. Help us to be wise. But Lord, I pray that as we see the culture descending below and going down, I pray that you would stir in our hearts a desire to trust you and a desire to exalt Christ and see Christ for who He really is, our Savior and the Savior of the world. Help us not to grow weary, especially now. Lord, stir in us and help us to have hope and help us to take pity on those who are hurting and minister the gospel to them and love them and be kind to them. Help us to fight error but not attack people. Help us to love other people and to lead them and guide them into the saving knowledge of Christ. Help us, Lord, to have compassion and to exemplify what Christ is, gentle and lowly and meek, that we also would not extinguish smoking wicks and bruised reeds, that we would be people who model ourselves after our Savior. But help us, Lord, to stand firm in the truth not to give our heart away to idols and to trust in our sovereign God eminently. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.